This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the rest of my time show. show. It's Politics at the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, as David Cameron, well, nestles into the Foreign Office and starts planning his first trips around the world, we ask, how's he going to go down in the capital cities of the world? We fire up Times Radio Airways and do a quick whistle-stop tour the world. We're in Israel and Washington and Brussels and Berlin. Really fascinating chat there. And then, because everyone's still banging on about Brexit, there's a brand new theatre show where Alex Salmond and David Davis argue about Brexit. Uh, I actually want to ask them, what's it like when seeing the bloke who's beaten you, whether it's in a Tory leadership contest or a Scottish referendum, he's back in politics. What do they make of David Cameron's comeback? That's coming up in just a moment. But it's a Tuesday, so it's a how to win an election day. The full episode is available over where you're listening to this right now but here is a little taster of this week's episode of how to win an election all about how peter mandelson was brought back by a former chancellor became prime minister got into spot of bother and reached out to a rival to try and shore him up so strike up the band You're proposing throughout the entire series to repeat the fact that I kept losing elections. I think I've lost elections worse and harder than you. (laughs) Nobody is better at losing elections than the Labour Party. Here we are again, the no reshuffle here on how to win an election. Everyone's still in their place. We've still got new Labour mastermind, Peter Manson. Hello, Peter. Hello, Matt. Uh, Polly McKenzie, who is Director of Policy for Nick Clegg of the Coalition. Hello, Polly. Hello, Matt. And uh, Tory Brainbox, Danny Finkelstein, is here as well. Are you enjoying us adding in constant different yeah, ways of you um, saying that you're losing Danny into the intro? <laughs> uh, now, although, Polly, you were boasting that you had a record of losing elections, but... A source has been in touch with us with details of when you first won an election. I now have the full details of the first election Polly won through underhand means. The first year form captain elections at her school in Monmouth. She was up against my wife, who for the purpose of the election is the noble but thwarted Al Gore, winner of the popular vote but loser on a technicality. They both want to be form captain. 
Uh, me being English said to Polly, no, don't vote for me, I don't care. I voted for Polly. Polly being an election winning machine took my vote and then voted for herself. That was what tipped it. <laughs> Do you remember any of that? I remember none of that. <laughs> And that's how, Isn't that, that convenient? That's how political memory works. Yeah, so thank you to our secret source, Tom Whipple, Science Editor of the Times. Apparently his wife ran against you at school. His wa- ex um, at Times as well, yeah. in fact, yeah. I thought say ex-wife. I was going to say no, ex-wife. No, ex-wife. Ex- <laughs> another... I, I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe... I shall, I shall have words with Catherine. Well, if you want to get in touch with any other times that Polly's done you over, you can email <laughs> howtowin <laughs> at thetimes.co.uk. Or if you've got questions or comments or queries or complaints about the podcast, you can email howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. So, uh, let's turn to how to win at a reshuffle. So, you've got a former Chancellor who became Prime Minister, struggling in the face of grim economic headwinds, turns to a former political foe, sticks him in the House of Lords, and prays it will help turn the polls around ahead of a looming election. Sound familiar? Of course we must face facts. Electorally, we are in the fight of our lives. And yes, we do start that fight as underdogs. But conference, let me say this. If I can come back, (laughs) we can come back. So, that was you, Peter. Uh, On your comeback, that was at the 2009 Labour Party conference. You returned to the Cabinet a year earlier as a peer to help Gordon Brown try and turn things around. It's probably fair to say your relationship with Gordon Brown up until that point was probably more fraught than even that between Remainer, David Cameron and Brexiteer Rishi Sunak. So take, take us back to 2008. You're minding your own business. Gordon Brown, what, picks up the phone, comes around with a box of chocolates. How does it work? I minded my own business, very, very happily being European Trade Commissioner, existing in the rest of the world, not barely thinking about uh, Britain. But every now and again, I would get an invitation from somebody who knew Gordon, who was close to Gordon. This was in the months beforehand. And they'd say, why don't you come around for dinner and just chat about you know, how things are going in Britain, which were pretty grim. Uh, Gordon faced a terrible and torrid first year as Prime Minister when everything went wrong and he slipped further and further down in the opinion polls. And so I'd give my advice and my two halfpenneth worth and go back on the next train to China, Japan or somewhere in Africa or whatever. And then things became a little bit more intense And I remember Gordon phoning me. I was in Singapore. He phoned me literally in the middle of the night uh, and said, I've got to make a statement tomorrow about I cannot remember uh, uh, what. How do you think I should, you know, deal with it? And I thought, God, you know, here I am, fast asleep in Singapore, couldn't be further from uh, the scene of action in uh, London. And he was basically trying to sort of reach out and to befriend me and make things up and sort of, you know, and I would say, look, you know, if I can help you, I will. But the last thing I thought was that I'd be helping him by actually returning to his government. And then on the fateful week, um, I was due to return to London to be briefed by the Treasury on the financial crisis and the crisis in our banks because they needed to smooth things over over with the commission and make sure the commission was was happy with their recapitalization of the banks which was going to take place that weekend and it was a thursday and i went into the treasury i was duly briefed and then i was asked whether i could just nip into number 10 to see the prime minister so of course i went in i sat down in the small wood paneled state 
dining room at number 10. And there in front of me was a pot of yogurt, a slightly browning <laughs> banana, and a sort of slightly curling sandwich. And that was lunch. <laughs> And Gordon came in and said, thank you very much, you know, for coming in to see me. I'm sorry, you know, it's a short notice, but I wonder whether I could sort of make you an offer. I said, well, like, like this lunch. <laughs> and he said, no, uh, I want you to rejoin the government. We're facing a terrible crisis. Uh, it's not been a brilliant time. We're going to completely refocus and reset the entire government, and I want you to be the centerpiece of it. Will you do so? And I said, well, I'm not sure about that. I'll think about it. And he looked at me in a slightly quizzical way and said, when you say think about it, you mean like 10 minutes? And I said, no, <laughs> no, no, I'll, eat yogurt. I'll come back, you know, I'll let me think about it over the weekend. He said, no, he said, this is going to be announced tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 Gordon, you, can't, you don't understand, you know, I've got a job, a trade commission, I, I, got a, you know, I can't just sort of up and sticks and leave Brussels and rejoin your government. He said, you've got to. And I said, well... <laughs> Do you mind if I call a friend and get some advice? I went out and I went round to see Tony Blair. And by the time I got to Blair's office in Grosvenor Square, Gordon had phoned him. <laughs> and Gore, Tony received me with a very, very broad, Tony-ish grin and said, you couldn't make it up. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, Gordon's rung me. He's asked me to make sure that you say yes. And you've got no alternative. If in a state of national crisis, the Prime Minister asks you to do something to help the country, you've got to do it. So you've got to do it. And that was it. My fate was sealed. Just remind listeners about how bad your relationship had got with Gordon Brown. Do I have to? Clearly you were... Well, I, I could <laughs> it was ask pretty the, dire. I could ask the yeah. question. But you were Just there at the beginning of the formation of New Labour with, with, with Gordon and Tony, but then over time... So, it, so if well, it we were the, the three musketeers. Yeah. And we, and from the late 80s onwards, we were the three modernisers of the Labour Party, and it started basically after the 1987 election. They were up-and-coming members of the Shadow Cabinet. I was the party's communications and campaigns director. And we formed a really strong cadre, and we couldn't have been closer. I mean, everything we did was sort of hand in glove, and we consulted each other on everything, every speech, utterance, statement, political move, and all was going swimmingly until, tragically, John Smith died in 1994, and then we had to make the fateful choice uh, between the two modernizers, um, Brown or Blair, and Brown uh, blamed me eternally thereafter, uh, for the choice of uh, Blair. It was not my choice. All I did was to say, look, let's sort of, you know, stand back and decide which of you has the better chance, you know, where your support lines up, etc. And overnight, the, the, the entire sort of party, trade unions, Labour MPs, even in Scotland, moved like a block to Tony. And I was the one who had to go to Gordon two days later and say, look, you know, you just got to look at what's happening amongst the MPs, look at the opinion polls, the trade unions lining up. I'm very sorry, you're going to have to, if you want to beat Tony, if you want to stop Tony running, you are going to have to summon the most enormous dark forces and you are going to have to go in and just could have kill him. Do you really want to do that? If you do that, the modernizers will be dead. You know, we'll just be set at each other's throats. Mm. It will be the end of the whole project. You've got to decide one or the other. And I've got to tell you, in all candour and friendship, 
uh, the party is lining up behind Tony and not you. And therefore, we've got to decide how you're going to airlift yourself out of this, and I'll give you every support and help in doing that so that you come out of it sort of strongly with your dignity intact and everything. And from that moment on, Tony, of course, won the leadership and Gordon barely spoke to me again because he just thought that I had been behind this manoeuvre. Ten years. Uh, 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 For ten years. years, He sort of... I mean, we had the odd conversation now and again. Um, But basically, he and his gang did for me. In, in the most sort of ghastly way. And uh, so that made it all the more sort of ironic and dramatic <laughs> when I was summoned in, you know, to the yoghurt and the banana in the small <laughs> state dining room uh, to be asked to come back and save his government, which I did as a very loyal deputy. I mean, people, some people said to me afterwards, you know, your job is to make sure that Gordon doesn't last, that he's replaced with a, a genuine new Labour moderniser. They wanted mm. uh, David Miliband and there was one sort of attempted sort of skirmish or coup after another. And I wasn't having any of it. I hadn't come back to bury Gordon Brown. I'd come back to save Gordon Brown. I'd already, inverted commas, buried him once. I wasn't going to do it again. Uh, And therefore, I stood behind him all the way through. And even to today, some people blame me for the loss of the 2010 election because I didn't move quickly and sharply enough to replace Gordon with uh, David Miliband. But, of course, the person who didn't move, the person who sort of quivered uh, and wouldn't make his move against Gordon was, of course, David Miliband, and I wasn't going to do it on his behalf. It's an amazing story, yeah, but the parallels, Danny, with what's happened this week with David Cameron coming back, yeah. given that basically David Cameron and Rishi Sunak <coughs> fell out when Rishi Sunak backed Brexit and he was told, yeah. if you do that, your career will be over because Remain are going to win. They were, they were squabbling only six weeks ago with the fate of HS2. It's true. And now it, here they are. I mean, it's, it's clearly not, not as bad as no. I mean, I think, I think 10 years more of no yoghurt. They don't really basically have much of a relationship at all, though. Mm. I th- I, you know, I think... Rishi Sunak has a better relationship with George Osborne, probably, than or you know, hitherto than with David Cameron. I don't really think they're that. They've been that close. They've had the sort. You know, Peter will know is when you when 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 I was working with William Hague, for example, you were constantly thinking, "What will John Major think of this change that we're making?" And you'd ring them up, and that's the sort of relationship you have with a former leader. And I don't think Rishi Sunak's relationship with David Cameron went much beyond that. He wasn't in Parliament for long before mm-hmm. David. Um, fell. His relationship has always been very strong with William Haig, and I, you know, there have been suggestions that William was, a, you know, a bit of a go between between the two of them. But I mean, you can always phone yeah. up. You can always phone up David Cameron. He'd have that relationship with him. It wasn't the same. This, the relationship that, that Peter had with with Gordon Brown was had been so intensely close, and then it split. I think that's different, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It started in the mid nineteen eighties, so it was a very intense relationship. So it wasn't did, two did, people who were part did, of the did, same project. Did David come and speak to you about it before? No, he didn't. And I, and I, and I think that I think um, that it was it was kept secret, and I think that he must have only told one or two people. If I had to guess, I would say he told. He'll definitely have spoken to George Osborne about it, and he'll have spoken to Andrew Feldman about it, Lord Feldman, who was the chairman of the Conservative Party, and he's his closest ally and friends since university. He, they talk about everything, and I think, and obviously he'll have consulted Samantha, but that he wouldn't have gone beyond that. If the moment any either of them went beyond that, if he, if 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 Rishi went much beyond James Forsyth and Liam Booth Smith, it would have leaked. The problem, Danny, is that. Uh, Sunak would have been worried uh, about Cameron turning him down 
I mean, so he certainly didn't want it leaked. He didn't want it sort of pumped into the media ether and a discussion started in case Cameron didn't then come yeah, back yeah. and that would have been portrayed as a huge setback. I, so it had to be done in complete secrecy. I bet he got William to ask him that question first. They wouldn't have had a meeting in person until if but they William, knew that he was... Because William, for example, himself, I know, and anybody who's spoken to William would know, would, would if he'd been offered it, 100% have turned it down. So you wouldn't have have um, asked yeah. him in the first place. I bet you anything that a feeler was put out to David before. Polly, take us to the moment when you saw David Cameron walking up down street. What went through your mind? Uh, actually, a bit of a sense of relief and positivity. And it, it actually did take me back to... Uh, I remember being just a sort of lowly opposition advisor uh, when Peter returned to government. And there was a sense of calm... Because politics is so dominated by these rivalries and resentments and the who said what to whom 20 years ago. And who, and it, it's so toxic so often. And, and if you think about what's happened to the Conservative Party, where we've had this rapid succession of prime ministers, each of which has very clearly tried to define themselves against the previous one, um, and their big radical policies have been unpicking policies that they backed just a few months or years ago... The, the idea of actually making, I guess, a big open and generous offer, which is the language Cameron <laughs> used when he uh, offered the coalition agreement to the Liberal Democrats, of just saying, let's, let's find forgiveness. Let's be in the same team. Mm. It, it's only the beginning. Mm. But actually, to, to have a team instead of a set of rivalries and resentments that have all gone toxic and mouldy is the only way to actually move forward. I think this is a very good point Paul is making. Look, when I came back, and this is why it's not quite the same as uh, David Cameron's return, I was brought back in order to make the entire government function differently and, and, and better. I was brought back in order to enable it to help it to communicate better to the outside world, but also to smooth over and heal some of the differences and ill feeling that had grown up in uh, Gordon's uh, cabinet. But it was all part of a major reset, a strategic reset of the whole government. The whole point of my coming back and joining the economic war cabinet was part of the government's entire refocusing on fighting the global financial uh, uh, crisis. I am not so persuaded that David Cameron's return is the beginning of a major strategic reset of, of Rishi Sunak's uh, uh, government. I think for that to happen, Rishi Sunak would really have to decide what sort of Tory leader he wants to be, what sort of Tory government uh, he wants to lead. Is it a sort of centre-facing, moderate, unifying, one-nation uh, Conservative government, or is it one which tilts more uh, to the right and is fending off the draining of support from the Conservatives to the further right reform party? And I think that what Sunak wants to be is the right-leaning conservative leader with a bit more centrist vibe. And that's what he's <laughs> getting uh, from David Cameron. I think it's a piece of wonderful sort of window dressing and very elaborate <laughs> theatre. I mean, not quite as dramatic. I mean, after all, David Cameron is only returning to the government for the first time. I mean, he's not the three times comeback kid that I was. <laughs> um, and, you know, so he, he's a sort of... Thankfully. He's a, he's a young <laughs> pretender. He's got some way uh, yeah. uh, to go. He was also walking down 
uh, up uh, Downing Street yesterday, minus that wonderful crimson red uh, jumper uh, <laughs> that sparked so much speculation in the media. You know, but what was it made of? Where was it bought? Your, your, the, this was your jumper. This was yeah. my jumper yes. when I walked up Downing Street. And in the end, the press office settled on, well, it's a cashmere mix, you know, <laughs> sort of very new labour. Uh, uh, sort of, yeah, and that's satisfying. You're wearing a very nice jumper today. It's a sort of rust brown. The thing about walking up Downing Street, and you, there's always these photographers outside, and I said to one of them once, because they kind of ran around trying to photograph me after I'd left number 10, and I said, you're just keeping that in case I get into a scandal. But there's no way that you're going to run this under any other circumstances. It's only if, I, if I'm in a scandal, your editor will go, oh, has anyone got... Oh, well, we're still waiting, Danny. Yeah, we're still waiting. <laughs> Daddy, Daddy scandal. But I, I agree with Peter. So um, I think that choosing this is a... Make, choosing to remove Suella Bradman and put David Cameron in the cabinet is an extremely big choice. The question is now, will he see it through? If he doesn't see it through, then it is pretty pointless to do it. And to hear the rest of this week's episode of How to Win an Election, just search How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. Right, up next, we are boarding the aeroplane to tour the globe to find out, does anybody want to meet David Cameron? Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, David Cameron packing his bags and setting off around the world, replacing James Cleverley as Foreign Secretary. But how will he go down? Will they be rolling out the red carpet for him, the former Prime Minister arriving in cities around the world? Uh, will he come with too much diplomatic baggage? Well, we thought we'd fire up Times Radio Airways once more. Um, we'll find out which country and conflict will be at the top of David Cameron's intray. So all aboard. Your seats in an upright position, please, as we head, first of all, to... Israel, where Anshul Pfeffer is there for us. Hi, Anshul. Good afternoon, mate. Uh, I mean, clearly, the conflict between Israel and Hamas is the most pressing uh, foreign policy issue for the government, and therefore David Cameron as the first, as the foreign secretary. 
What's his reputation like there as a sort of honest broker? Does him being a former Prime Minister give him extra purchase? Or does his past record, including saying in 2010, Gaza cannot and must be allowed, must not be allowed to remain a prison camp, does his record actually count against him? How will he go down? To be honest, he never really made much of an impression here. He was, you know, he made the customary visits as leader opposition. He made, the, you know, he was here as prime minister, but there, 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 there wasn't any real like diplomatic missions or peace building efforts on his behalf in, in any of in any of his political career. And you, know, you mentioned the stuff that he said. I think he said that while he was still leader of the opposition, and maybe it was maybe it was still his hugger hoodie face. I don't know. But there's as prime minister, he was certainly on policy matters probably the most pro-Israel Prime Minister uh, that Britain had, at least until that point, even going beyond Blair and Brown, who have also seen as very pro-Israel. Cameron changed the law on universal jurisdiction, which was something that bothered the Israelis a lot. He pushed behind the scenes new sanctions on Iran while he was Prime Minister. So he was seen uh, in the seven years as a PM as being very pro-Israel, but at the same time not massively involved in in the in middle east policy and i think i don't think that was ever been one of his main uh, foreign policy uh, interests so does it make a difference that he was part his premiership overlapped with benjamin netanyahu i mean the people have been speculating that actually he might get into meetings with world leaders rather than his sort of direct counterparts or, or is it this bluntly actually a conflict which will only really be resolved with the intervention of the US and Britain regardless of who the foreign secretary is is a, as a sort of side player in this well I think Cameron would probably get a meeting with Netanyahu if, if he were to come and I've already heard rumours that there are they're starting to look at the schedule for for a visit in the next few days he does have more stature and as you, as you said he's met Netanyahu a number of times because their terms as prime minister have coincided. Um, but you're right. At the end of the day, the only country which really matters here uh, outside the region is the United States. And Britain is, even amongst European countries, is not seen as, uh, as the most influential. Britain is probably at the lowest point in centuries, I think, uh, of its influence in the Middle East. Uh, thanks so much, that, much for that. That's Angel Pfeffer there in Israel uh, for the time. So if America is more important, let's head there now. It's all back on the plane. Stow away your tables. Sit bags at the ready. We are crossing the Atlantic. Uh, we're heading to America to hear from Kathleen Dornbos, who covers Washington, D.C. for the New York Post. And I asked her if Washington was gripped by the news that David Cameron is back. I would say no. Unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't particularly keep up to date with the Secretary of State. However, I would venture to say that uh, Washington itself, at least the Biden administration, might be leaning more towards being receptive to him being in place just because some of their policy issues align. I suppose that's the more important thing, isn't it? It doesn't matter if, if everyone in America is gripped by Rishi Sunak's reshuffle. It's the message that Britain can land in Washington at a time when you know, America's connections with the rest of the world are constantly in flux. Does David Cameron have a decent reputation in Washington? He was obviously very close to Barack Obama, met him even actually before he became Prime Minister, but yes. then called the referendum, got Barack Obama to stick his neck out and say, you'll be at the back of the queue and all of that during the campaign. 
and then lost the thing and had to resign. So I just wonder how he's sort of viewed in in Washington. Yeah, I think he's very viewed, not just in Washington, but all across the country, positively. I think the United States looked at the Brexit option and the referendum as, you know, they were in support of this movement of democracy, letting the people vote. But ultimately, I think David Cameron took on a lot of respect when he stepped down from the position and wasn't in support of Brexit to begin with. What about if, hypothetically, there's a lot of ifs here, if Rishi Sunak wins an election at some point next year, which they'll most likely have to be, and if Donald Trump uh, returns as president, any sense of the relationship between uh, Donald Trump and the, the Trump camp and David Cameron, given that David Cameron was so pro-Remain and, and Trump was an enthusiastic Brexiteer and mates with Nigel Farage? I think Trump would have gotten on phenomenally with Suella Braverman. With her, with her gone, having a new administration with, with David Cameron in there would maybe be a little bit fraught with Donald Trump. I mean, we'll see. Donald Trump is very into America first and insular, but I think I just don't know if David Cameron would even want to have much of a relationship <laughs> himself. Um, just finally, though, we've actually seen Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden have had quite a lot of meetings and contact and phone calls and all that sort of thing. Just in terms of what is in David Cameron's in-tray, what should he be thinking about doing? What might Joe Biden want from this new-look British government? He's going to want to work with the UK on international issues, especially Ukraine, especially China, especially Israel. There are so many conflicts going on right now that I think that he is just trying to catch his breath and get as much international support as he can, because ultimately the United States can throw money at any problem, but it's its alliances that really are its strength. And the UK is one of the most important alliances that we have. Do you think just being, just being David Cameron will open doors in Washington that an unknown foreign secretary wouldn't? I would assume so. I mean, this is a name that Americans actually recognize. I mean, I think if you asked who the prime minister was, I'm not sure many Americans could tell you the current Rishi, but they certainly know David Cameron. And I think that's because of his work with Obama during that administration, but also because of his role in the Brexit vote. Callan Dorbosk, who covers Washington, D.C. for the New York Post. But we're back on the plane now. I'll take a very direct route this, but now going back across the Atlantic, heading to Europe. Let's go to uh, Germany. Christina Jovanovsky is a journalist based in Berlin. Um, Christina, David Cameron bowls up in Berlin. Will he get a good reception or do they still remember the Brexit days? I think it'll overall be good and good news for the German government. Uh, certainly people here remember him as introducing the Brexit referendum. When I talked to the German yesterday and I told her about the decision, she, she said it, it was ironic. You could see a lot of surprise from the German press here of the decision. At the same time, Cameron was someone who was in support of remaining in the EU. So I don't think he'll be seen as uh, necessarily a bad person, but as someone who made in terms of the German perspective, a foolish decision. So I don't think there was animosity, but I think there was bewilderment over this decision as well as holding the referendum. But I think overall, it'll be a good step for the German government in its relations with the UK because Cameron will be a bit closer to the ideology of the German government, the politicians, especially the foreign ministry, which is led by the Green Party. 
It's interesting because there was definitely a sense that when he was Prime Minister that he sort of misinterpreted his cordial relationship with Angela Merkel, thought he was going to get lots of concessions on immigration as part of his renegotiation. He didn't get it and then he sort of reassured her and others that don't worry, I'm going to win this uh, referendum. It didn't pan out like that. Do you think he'll be more cautious when dealing with Olaf Scholz? I mean, clearly he won't have that same relationship as some of the other world leaders uh, that we're, we're looking at today. Well, Mr. Schultz did actually meet with Cameron um, right before the referendum, a few months before the referendum. Schultz was the mayor of Hamburg at the time, although he did have a lot of uh, experience in national politics in the parliament as well before that. Um, Cameron had gone to uh, a, a dinner in Hamburg along with the Chancellor Merkel, the, the, the leader of Germany at the time, and had met with Schultz um, during that time. So Schultz has a bit of experience with Cameron. I think Schultz will really respect that uh, there is a foreign um, foreign secretary that has experience, political experience, and that their ideologies and their rhetoric um, won't be so far away as the previous foreign secretary. Christina, thanks a lot for that. Christina Jovanovsky, uh, based in Berlin. Well, we're talking a lot about Brexit. Uh, let's get back on the plane and we'll speak to Bruno Waterfield, uh, who reports from Brussels for the Times. Hi, Bruno. Hello. Uh, how will, I bet you've probably seen the back of him the number of times, late night uh, summits you've covered in Brussels <laughs> and David Cowan. Now he's bowled up again. How will he go down with politicians in Brussels and in other European capitals, do you think? He, he's not held in, in, in high regard. He really isn't held in high regard. Um, uh, I was in a bar in Brussels when he resigned, when he was at the podium outside um, Downing Street. And I'm sure you'll remember, Matt, he walked back into... Downing Street, sort of humming and warbling um, to do, himself. Do, do, I was with so, a, yeah. yeah, and I was with a, a, a diplomat from a, a country, very a real anglophile as well. And he was really, really shocked, and there was this real shock that instead of he'd gambled on this vote, which he'd been advised against by all other European leaders, he'd rushed through a, a renegotiation. They they said to leave it until 2017. He wanted to. Uh, rush it through and then you know when it goes wrong he was arrogant during the campaign European leaders were saying oh it's not going too well is it David and he'd go don't worry I'm a winner look at me I'm a winner um, and so you know, complacency arrogance all the rest of it and then the, it goes terribly wrong it all blows up he resigns um, walks off warbling into Downing Street turns up uh, a day later in Brussels um, for a summit um, behaved according to you know most people in the room like a petulant child he had a go at Angela Merkel and said it was all her fault and he enraged people so much for that that summit his last summit on June 28th they agreed a declaration which then had blew up um, the Brexit negotiations it made it very difficult for the European negotiators and also for British negotiators to start from a clean slate because David Cameron in a fit of, of moodiness as he departed um, kind of poisoned uh, the atmosphere so he, he is held um, in low regard especially actually um, in France. And it's actually Sunak, um, uh, uh, Boris Johnson as well, actually, with um, Ukraine that have rebuilt um, the links and the relationships um, with Europe. So certainly in most European capitals, certainly in Brussels, um, certainly in Paris, um, Cameron you know, comes, with a, comes with a lot of baggage and he's not, you know, he's not seen as the, the saviour uh, savior of, of the Conservative government. And in mm. fact, um, the only positive people see is it's no longer necessary um, for a British Conservative Prime Minister to appoint a Brexiteer, 
um, to um, uh, oversee relations with the EU. And I think that is seen as a, a minor, minor um, positive. But I think this is very much seen as the last gasp um, of a British Prime Minister, uh, Sunak, who's uh, on his way out. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that, Bruno. Bruno Waterfield there. Uh, the number of late nights I've had with Bruno in Brussels in summits where David Cameron's been about to get that deal. Uh, it's no wonder he probably isn't going to go down all that well. Right. After all that excitement, it's back on the play. We need to head back to London. It turns out then that Brexit is going to still hang quite heavy, particularly in some of those European capitals. Well, would you like to hear two people that are still arguing about Brexit? Of course you would. Uh, not only are they here, you can go to see them in a uh, in a theatre show as well. Joining me in the studio, former Brexit Secretary David Davis. So good to see you. And you. And former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond, now leader of the Hour Party. Alex, good to see you. Great to be here, Matt. So, we'll come in a moment to uh, this this live show that you're doing where you're going to battle it out. But you've both been, you've both crossed swords with David Cameron over the years. David, you ran against him for the Tory leadership. Yeah. And we all know how that panned out. Yeah. Alex, you ran against him with the, the referendum in 2014. <clears throat> That's right. I mean, I, you know, I, I got unreasonably well with him and set up the referendum. I mean, I, I suppose, that, I mean, I, I did object on trying to enlist the late Queen onto the, the, the no side. Uh, but, uh, of course, he was panicking in the last couple of weeks, as we know from his autobiography. Uh, but it worked. Well, uh, did his panic work? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, I mean look, I, I think it was a grand short-term move by Rishi Sunak to appoint Cameron, took everybody by surprise. But I think I would have appointed David Davis. I mean, more brains, less baggage. <laughs> David, were you surprised not to get the call? No. No, no. Um, what did you? What went through your mind yesterday when you when you saw David Cameron walking up Downing Street? Well, I mean, David David's a clever man. He'll be a competent foreign secretary. I mean, he won't be a Carrington or a Hurd because they have much more depth. Than, but but uh, you know, he'll probably be better than uh, uh, better than some of the ones that's gone before. Um, so from that point of view, I can understand it. Um, but I also thought, well, you know, he's got some he's got some things to weave through, you know, like obviously the Greensill stuff, uh, which will come back and haunt him, I'm afraid. Uh, but also some of the relationships with China and so on. So I'm not quite sure how he'll do that. But the I guess the the, the, the starkest thing is not really to do with him, except the fact that he's in the Lords, you know. And we're at a time in the uh, history of our country when it's been more more global challenges than I've seen since 1979. And so the Commons will have a lot of views on that. You know, I mean, Israel alone. Is, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and it's going to be quite difficult to... to I mean, you know, Andrew Mitchell will do a stand-in job, but he, it's not him making a decision. So there's an issue to deal with there. I'm not quite sure how they're going to square that circle. Does it make you more confident about the Tories' election prospects? Did Rishi Sunak, six weeks ago, was doing the I'm the change guy, everything that's gone before me is terrible. Now he's taken the architect of everything that's gone before and stuck him in the cabinet. Well, is that a better plan? That's what asked me in four weeks' time, really. I, I don't know yet, is the, is the honest answer. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm pleased they've changed the Home Secretary. Uh, I think that that was unavoidable, frankly, after, uh, after what went on. Uh, you know, I'm very strongly against her arguments on banning demonstrations and this sort of thing. I'm very strongly against Home Secretary telling telling off the uh, the head of the police in public. I don't think that's what they should do. Um, so that that was a good move. Um, and the rest, well, we'll see. We'll, play, we'll see how it plays out. It's quite complicated uh, internal reshuffle going on. What are the Tory WhatsApp groups like this morning? 
I don't know. I don't, well, I don't read what. Like <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the idea that I look yeah. at social media. Is, um, you know, come on, you should know me better. I'm, on, I'm, I'm in all the Tory WhatsApp groups under an assumed name, so I, I keep a close eye. Well, yeah, Wolsey calls himself was, David Davis. I should there, think. Was, there was somebody in one of them wished happy birthday to a fictitious colleague, and then lots of other people. I think it included Therese Coffee. Ended up congratulating well, him actually, and no, not the, knowing the, that it was the, not the, a real the, person. The, the Conservative Party fictitious colleague. Shows how well informed they are. The Conservative Party has never been known as the intelligent part. <laughs> well, there's hope for you to get this, then, Alex. Are you waiting by the phone? Humza Yousaf calling you up? <coughs> well, I mean... Thinking about know, the old I, guard? I, I, I've, been, I've been waiting for a meeting that he, he promised me some time ago, but uh, but uh, that hasn't transpired yet. But, but look... Yeah, the but Cameron... meetings with the Scots government don't go well for them, as <laughs> well, I remember. The, the, the Cameron... <laughs> The Cameron appointment, uh, it does have one advantage that I can see. I mean, it is the case that out with the Prime Minister and perhaps the Chancellor, uh, nobody knows who's in the Tory cabinet. I mean, all the, 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 the household names, if you call them that, in the Conservative Party have all either been sacked or resigned. Uh, so at least he's brought into I the cabinet somebody, <laughs> somebody who, with the sole exception of David Davis, uh, is uh, is known to the uh, is known to the public. You know, he is a household name or perhaps a stately home name. But in David Cameron's <laughs> case, but but none but nonetheless, there must be some advantage in that. But is yeah. this going to save the, the Sunak government? No. no, no chance whatsoever. Sack sack the governor of the Bank of England. That would help. Oh, okay. What difference does that make? Well, because the Conservative Party cannot win an election having, you know, put interest rates up 13 times and wrecked the finances of small businesses and, and mortgage holders. I mean, some things the Conservative Party can do and not do, that's one of the things you can't do. That, David? Well, I have some sympathy with that. I do think interest rates are too high, and I do think we should be cutting taxes. So let's see what happens in two weeks' time or one two week's time. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do we need a new governor of the Bank of England? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I would have I would have picked a different one in the first place. No, I would have picked Andy Haldane. Well, you could also have one with an economics degree. That would be an innovation. <laughs> oh, come on! You're getting that. You're being you're being a moderniser now. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your new thing before you start squabbling. Um, uh, well, you, that is about the squabbling. You, exactly, it's all about squabbling. So you did it at the Edinburgh Fringe, and now it's coming to the West End. It's called the Eyes Have It, and it's you two arguing over Brexit. Well, it was, it was well, ten different things. And all sorts of other subjects. All sorts of other things. Uh, independence. I mean, for right, example, right we did independence strike. in which we had an audience consisting entirely of Alex Hammond supporters. Well, I'm, I'm busting <laughs> them all down. No, no, I'm busting them all <laughs> oh, down. No, oh, no, ouch. No, that was a big room. Yeah. Uh, you, should, you should try that yourself. Yeah. You know, a large audience can be great, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. No, try I'm aware. But I'm going to bust them all down for next week's debate. But the motion of this one is Brexit is a disaster and must be reversed. Absolutely. You got right to the point. I mean, yeah. everybody in the ranty, even David Cameron, and, uh, knows that Brexit's been a disaster. Even Nigel Farage said that. But the question is, can it be reversed? So I've got on my side, I've got Lena uh, Miller, I've got Andrew Marr, I've got the, all the posh, decent, intelligent people on my side. David has a gang of ruffians supporting him. Who have you allocated uh, me? <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got the feisty Baroness Fox. We got Claire Fox. Claire, Claire Fox. And Mike, and Mike Graham, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> who, who, incidentally, was a... A tremendous hit at the fringe, and in that people tried to hit him. But we, we, we should say, we should say, this is a Tasmin Ahmed Sheikh production. It was yes. her concept and idea. Mm, yeah. I, and it's actually, it, you know, I don't think when we agreed to do it, I don't think either David or myself wondered how it would work. But at the fringe, it was absolutely sensational. Yeah. I mean, you managed to debate serious subjects 
in a proper way with a bit of humour laced in uh, and, you know, went away not trying to tear I mean, each other's you, eyes so out you, afterwards. You, Alex, obviously agree with the motion. You must half agree with it, David. No, no, it's no. Been no. A, it's been a disaster, but you want to keep no, ploughing on. No, I, I resigned because they weren't doing it properly, but no, it's yeah. not a disaster and I'll go through all of that on the day and you'll we'll have great fun with that. But what was interesting in the, in the Fringe was the, 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 as Alex said, it was feisty, it was exciting... The reason I agreed to do it, even though, well, you've got to bear in mind in Edinburgh, talking about either uh, independence or or Brexit, you know, I'm so far behind enemy lines, I might as well have arrived by parachute. You know, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, the helicopter for him to go. <laughs> yeah. But on the last day, I'd actually said to the audience, you know, the point of this is, you know, the last two decades, public debate has diminished. It's, you know, it's divided into competing echo chambers, not people not talking to each other. And Brexit's one example. Uh, all the woke stuff's another example. You, know, you go through it. I mean, there's a whole load of issues. Uh, and we're, no, we're having it now over, over civil liberties and demonstrations. Uh, and this was, you know, trying to recreate what we did before. And, and we got the biggest round of applause in the entire uh, 10 days on that. People were there to see proper debate Good-natured. I mean, it's quite aggressive sometimes. If either of you... But, yeah, you know, either we we of weren't you entirely nice to each other. each other's minds on anything. Oh, God, no. Well, but some <laughs> arguments. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, the, 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 we definitely adjusted arguments as we went on because, yeah. obviously, one of the great things about these debates is you is you see what the other person's saying and, and you get another chance that I'll just make sure I deflect that. We should have mentioned, incidentally, that, that John Berko's in the chair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's lots of fun and, yeah. and frivolity as we, well as the yeah, serious we, we, we want We want an impartial chair. <laughs> and, 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 and for those, for those Luckily, we don't know what he think about that. Those that are sitting at home saying, we see this, is the Leicester Square Theatre next yes. Tuesday at seven o'clock. Very good. Uh, before I let you both go, Nigel Farage has confirmed he's going into the jungle. Have either of you ever been asked to do that? Yes. And what did you say? Uh, I said no. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll find out what Nigel's being paid and uh, if they ask me again, who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> if they match it. <laughs> do you think he's going to use this as a platform to then come back as a Tory MP and take over the Tory party uh, after I, the next I, election? I don't David? think so. I think, I mean, you know... Would I you mean, like to sit along Nigel Farage in the Commons? Uh... I could see a benefit to it, but the but I mean, he's not going to come. He's not going to come in the Tory party. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, he wouldn't want to. I don't think. Um, but it would be interesting. He, what he's trying to do is appeal to a younger audience. That's what he's seeing. He said about seventy five percent of the people watching this uh, are, are very young. You know. Um, I mean, I, I hope he enjoys it. I mean, my time in the jungle, I didn't have a television camera with me. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, <laughs> wonderful. But the, I was going to say that the. I mean, there are certain aspects of. Uh, of uh, of that show, which will be good training for being in the Tory bench, is cohabiting with uh, uh, various uh, elements well, eating of the kangaroo species. anuses. Yeah, no, well, I, no, I, was, I was thinking more. You know, <laughs> the the, the, who you, who you cohabit with? You know, I think you know that, that's. I think that's excellent training for uh, for being a Conservative MP. So, so good luck to Nigel Farage in the jungle. We'll all enjoy. These tasks that he'll have. I to wish do. him well, and I he can buy he can buy the drinks next time. After that, I think it's fair to say it, it yeah. didn't con- reconnect Matt Hancock with the nation, and I'm not sure this will. Um, well, what could? <laughs> Lovely to see. Uh, uh, both, you, never mind doing this debate. You ought to both be doing panto. I think, no, well, we, 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 we do. We, the only difference is that when we're doing the debate, we do them at each other. You yeah, know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we can rehearse some of our best lines if you like. <laughs> Uh, David Davis, uh, former Brexit Secretary and uh, former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond. They are taking part in the Eyes Have It at the Leicester Square Theatre next Tuesday. Uh, You can go on live, you search for that online uh, and uh, you can go along to see that.
arguing about Brexit, if that's your cup of tea. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can email me, matt at times.radio. Now you've finished listening to this, you can head over to How to Win an Election with Peter Mandelson, Daniel Finkstein and Polly McKenzie. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.